Hi, welcome to Lambert Park Church. Our vision is life with God for the world. Our mission is to invite everyone to follow Jesus with us through redemptive community, intentional discipleship, and everyday mission. We're so glad you're here. Stay tuned for the podcast coming right up. We just finished going through Genesis chapter 1 and 2. If you're joining us and you haven't been a part of those other weeks, we're in the midst of a series looking at Genesis chapters 1 through 11. We finished chapter 1 and 2 the last few weeks uh, in a series called Original Grace. And it's just a beautiful picture so far in chapters 1 and 2 of how things were supposed to be um, in God's ideal, perfect environment, in his perfect world. Uh, Humanity living and experiencing the fullness of God's grace, love, and life. Um, An unhindered and untainted fellowship with family, friends, neighbors, and strangers. We see all this in chapters one and two. The untapped potential of creativity and the invitation to multiply truth, goodness, and beauty in partnership with and under God, who is the source of all truth, goodness, and beauty. And there are moments in chapters one and two we see this glimpse of God's ideal environment and we experience that goodness in our lives today. Uh, At Thanksgiving recently, when you look around the table and all your friends are laughing and enjoying each other's company, you know, that's a moment of goodness. Uh, when a new baby is born, we just melt, welcomed a new baby into our family, not Chelsea, my family, Chelsea's sister, um, and, uh, and she just had a baby. And, and when that happens, the sweet smell of a newborn and the new life that comes and enters into a family and the joy of seeing the little one grow up and learn and experience new things. Uh, worshiping on a Sunday is also a good, good thing. Uh, walking along the beach and being hit suddenly by how amazing God is and being drawn into worship. Those are such good things that we experience. But then, and we saw it in the announcements, sometimes life gives us a juxtaposition. You get a call telling you that your childhood best friend took his life the other day. Or after years of hiding it, a sibling confides in you that they've been victim to spousal abuse or cheating. Or someone in the family or a friend or yourself gets diagnosed with a terminal illness or chronic pain. Or secrets you've desperately tried to hide get exposed. Or secrets in the family or with our spouses get exposed. So in preparing for this sermon, I felt the heaviness of what we're gonna jump into. And I know that we all have at different points in time in life the heart-wrenching question that we can't avoid as human beings when we look around at the world or what's on the news currently or throughout history or the things that are happening in our own circles or in our own hearts, the question of where did it all go wrong? How did we end up here? It's the same question that the original audience of Genesis chapters one through 11 were asking. Uh, Genesis was written during a time when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, um, exiled from their homes, living among foreign people and foreign gods, questioning God's promises to them, 
tempted to put their faith elsewhere. I just recently read of the numerous Israelites who gave up on their faith in Yahweh and took on Babylonian gods, but also changed their names to Babylonian names. And the grief that led at least one psalmist to write during this period of time, by the rivers of Babylon we sat and we wept when we remembered Zion. So Genesis chapter three is an answer to this question. Where did it all go wrong? How did we end up here? In Genesis chapters one and two, and Scott beautifully laid this out for us, but a quick reminder, there was shalom, a Hebrew word that means peace and wholeness in the world, um, with God as well, and in our relationships, and in our relationship with the self. As Timothy Keller puts it, it was complete well-being. Shalom is complete well-being, physical, psychological, social, and spiritual well-being. And in Genesis chapter 3, we see it all break down. Or as one theologian puts it, we see a vandalism of God's original shalom. A total breakdown of the physical, psychological, social, and spiritual dimensions of life because of sin. Now, let it be said, most of us wish Genesis chapter 3 wasn't a part of this story, that the Bible ended at Genesis chapter 2 and the rest was history. That would be amazing. (laughs) But in a Genesis chapter 3 world, it's an act of grace that I want to recognize this morning. It's an act of grace by God to even include this chapter because it helps us understand where all of God's original intention went sideways and what happened. Now, before we get into it, I'll say that there have been countless books written on this chapter, uh, hundreds and hundreds of years of trying to figure out what all the symbolic language means. Um, This is, for most people, a confusing chapter. Um, But I want to quote Peter Kreeft here because he recognizes, a theologian, he recognizes the complexity of this chapter, but he has this brilliant quote, that what happened in Eden may be hard for us to understand as we're going through it, but it makes everything else understandable. When you look at the world, when you look on the news, when you experience brokenness in your life, Genesis chapter 3 is like a diagnosis of the illness that we uh, live with. So my hope this morning is that even if I can't cover everything in this text, that I can at least point out the most important bits to us, and that it would do just that, as Peter Kreeft has mentioned. Help us understand where everything went wrong. But before we jump in, because of the heaviness of the text this morning, I just want to pray, so I invite you to bow your heads and let's go to God. God, this is a weighty text this morning. I feel it. I feel it in my body. I feel it in my emotions, and I know others do as well. So I just pray a very simple prayer as we explore this chapter together. I just ask that in it, we would let ourselves feel the heaviness, that we wouldn't avoid it, but then that we'd also throw ourselves upon you and your grace. So we ask God to speak this morning. Our ears and hearts are open, and in Jesus' name we pray, amen. 
So we're going to try and nail down this text uh, as best as we can with the time that we have. I could keep you guys in here for three hours. We could go very slowly through it, but I won't do that to you. <laughs> um, about halfway through, I'm actually going to pivot and change gears. So I'm just going to tell you now so you're not surprised. Uh, we're going to actually take a step back after going through a bit of the text and see it in a different light. And I want to just throw it out here. Uh, while studying, God surprised me with. Uh, something that I had never seen before in this text that I believe will, might even be surprising to some of you who are familiar with Genesis chapter 3. It's not a new innovation. I'm not adding something that has never been seen before, but uh, something that I uncovered that I'd never heard before that goes back many years of interpretation of this text. So uh, I invite you guys to pull out your Bibles. Follow along with me if you want. You can take notes as well. Uh, I'll be reading from the New Living Translation. Um, I'll also throw up the verses on the screen. Actually, sorry, not the New Living Translation. I'm in the NIV. <laughs> um, and we'll put it up on the screen as well. Um, a quick side note, uh, sometimes the text in Genesis chapter 3, well, Genesis in general in the first few chapters, uh, sometimes the text will focus in on Eve. Uh, and other times it focuses in on Adam. Uh, now, I just want to, it's important for us to note that both Adam and Eve represent humanity in this text, okay? So we're talking about all of us. Um, even when they're singled out, even when we're just talking about Eve in a certain situation or just talking about Adam. So I just want to put that out there, okay? So with that said, let's start with verse one. This is what it says. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So right away here, we're introduced to a brand new character that has not been seen in Genesis so far, a nameless serpent. The serpent uh, is a purposeful symbol that the writer of Genesis is using here uh, because it would have been a familiar cultural reference to the original audience, okay? For us, it's very foreign, but to them, they would have immediately recognized what the serpent was representing here. Um, typically, in the ancient Near East and other texts that are similar to Genesis, like the Enuma Elish, but others as well, uh, serpents represent forces of chaos. <laughs> and so they would have recognized this right away. But the author of Genesis does something different with this symbol than we see elsewhere. Um, so in Genesis 3, we see this force of chaos enter the picture. And it's a serpent who talks. It's a serpent who talks. Uh, the immediate thing that the author wants us to do in Genesis chapter 3 is ask the question, what is this serpent's intention? Okay, Because in the way that it's written, the serpent is not being nice, <laughs> all right? He's crafty. He's described as being prudent and shrewd. Uh, in other words, he knows his environment and he has knowledge to be able to get what he wants. Um, and even if we don't know right away what he wants in Genesis chapter three, uh, the unfolding of the text, but also the rest of scripture lays it out for us. This serpent, this being, is anti-God, a being that is set out on thwarting God's intentions and introducing chaos into God's ordered world. Genesis chapters 1 and 2 have a lot to do with God's order, right? And this serpent is entering the picture and bringing chaos into God's ordered world. 
Now, how does he do that? Um, does he, you know, possess human beings with demons? Does he tempt them with magic and witchcraft, getting them to worship other gods, potentially? Uh, but there's actually something more subtle going on here. The serpent, underneath everything, thwarts God's plans and introduces chaos through lies. Through lies. Now, Jesus makes this connection in Genesis cha- or sorry, John chapter 8. <laughs> he says to those who wouldn't listen to him uh, that you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, truth, for there is no truth in him. And when he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So, back to our text in verse 1, we see that the first mistake that Eve makes is she gives ear to this creature. She listens to him. And this is important to note. Eve's not coerced. She's not forced to listen to the serpent. The serpent has no magic ability to lure her in. The serpent approaches her and Adam as a kind, angelic theologian inviting them into an innocent conversation about God, an exchange of ideas and curiosities. That's it. That's all he does. Now, reading this uh, in verse 1, I can't help but think of how often we give ear to voices that are unbiblical but advertise themselves as wanting to help or having our best interest at heart. Because the thing is, and we see it right away in verse one, bad ideas are not obviously bad, which is what makes them dangerous. All right, back to the text. The serpent asks a very simple question. Did God really say Now, his subtlety is purposeful here. He's not making any claims yet. I want to make that clear. He's not making any claims. But it's important to note that in the ideal environment of Genesis chapter 2, Adam and Eve are fully dependent on God, like little children are dependent on their parents. And they're dependent on God to figure out who they are and how they're supposed to be. The serpent, though, for the first time with this very simple question, opens up a new thought to humanity that maybe God isn't as good as Adam and Eve originally thought. Now notice what the serpent does here. He quotes from God himself, God's command back in Genesis chapter two, but he conveniently omits God's generosity and focuses on God's one and only no, making it so big that it becomes an unhealthy preoccupation. See, what God really said in Genesis chapter two is you are free, Adam and Eve, you are free to eat any tree in the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat from it, you will certainly die. But you are free, you are free to eat from any tree. 
Uh, Regent uh, biblical scholar Ian Provan points out what's happening here in the language that the serpent's using. He says that the vocabulary of God in Genesis chapter 2 indicates freedom and blessing and generosity. The vocabulary of the serpent in Genesis chapter 3, though, indicates prohibition and restriction. See, the serpent's ploy is to suggest to the woman that God is really not so good after all. He shifts attention away from all that God and his generosity has provided for his creatures in creation and onto the one thing that God has for the moment explicitly withheld. And in the next verses, we see what the serpent's beginning to do here start to unfold and take root. The woman responds to the serpent. She says in verse 2, We may eat, from, uh, eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. And I want to see if you guys caught Eve's language here and what she does. Did you notice that she minimizes the freedom that God gave her in Adam and adds a prohibition? God did say, you must not touch it. We shouldn't go near it. We shouldn't touch it. He didn't say that. Eve's own words here are misrepresenting God's words and God's command, which was exactly what the serpent wanted. He has successfully planted doubts in Eve's mind. Eve's thinking, well, maybe God isn't so good. Maybe he doesn't have our best interests at heart. Who is he to tell us what we can or can't do? Why should we listen to him? If he's good, he should let us do what we want. Now, as a dad, <laughs> there are times with Lucas when he really wants something like scissors on the counter, okay? He, this happens all the time. I'm cutting open something and I have scissors in my hand and he's reaching up and he wants the scissors. And, and despite me pointing out to Lucas that he has a gazillion toys that we've spent lots of money on or been gifted, <laughs> yet he just wants the scissors. He could play with all those toys, but he wants the scissors. <laughs> and he doesn't get that the scissors are going to hurt him. <laughs> And I'm not being a mean father, although I feel like it in the moment. I'm not being mean when I say to him, no. <laughs> I'm being a loving father. I'm caring for him. Now, I'm realizing, and maybe you are too as you read this, how childish Adam and Eve are in Genesis chapter 3. But also, how childish we are. With all our knowledge, all our science, all our pretending to know, pretending to be grown-ups, we still act like children when it comes to our relationship with our Heavenly Father. I want that. Give me that. Don't tell me what to do. And when God says, out of his infinite wisdom, no to us, it doesn't immediately cross our minds that he might have a good reason for saying so. So up until this point, the serpent has been slowly coiling his deception around Eve, and slowly without her even realizing it. And now the time has come for the serpent's fatal strike. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, 
For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. The serpent has totally moved on from subtlety here, and now he's directly contradicting God's words. Before, the serpent simply opened up to Eve a new idea, a new thought or doubt. God may not be on your team. He may not be on your side. Now that the doubt has been planted, he introduces an entirely new possibility, a new reality. Remember, in the ideal environment, there was only one path for Adam and Eve, and that was following and trusting God. Now the serpent has introduced a new possibility, a new reality, a new way of life, if you will. And what is that new reality? Well, the key to the question uh, of what is that new reality is the word knowledge, knowing good and evil. Now, up front, there are a lot of different interpretations of this word out there. Uh, The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, Some think that, some biblical interpreters think that knowledge is quite literally knowledge or awareness of morality, good and evil, right and wrong. Um, And although the literal English translation uh, seems to bend in that direction, it doesn't actually fit with what we already know from Genesis. Adam and Eve were told by God not to eat from this tree, which presumes that they understand that there's a difference between doing something you're allowed to do and doing something you're not allowed to do. (laughs) And so right away we understand that they know the difference, at least somewhat, between right and wrong. Now others think that knowledge refers to uh, sexual lust or sexual behavior, because in some places in scripture, to know someone, right, figuratively, is to have sex with someone. Now, still others will also argue that um, the knowledge here is what enables humanity to build cultures and cities apart from God. But there's a better way, a whole better way of understanding the word knowledge here. Uh, The Hebrew word is yada, Y-A-D-A, and yes, it's where Star Wars gets the name Yoda from, (laughs) knowledge. Um, So the Hebrew word yada, uh, sorry, I had to throw that in, I was just a nerd. So the Hebrew word yada for knowledge, when we look at its use in the Old Testament, yes, sometimes it's used figuratively to describe having sexual relations with someone, but also it's used uh, or described uh, or describes children in Deuteronomy as not having yada just yet. So not having it yet. And in 2 Samuel, the elderly are described as having lost yada, having lost it. It's kind of like a riddle. What do children have yet to gain that elderly have lost and that those in between think that they have? (laughs) As pastor and theologian Daryl Johnson suggests, the word seems to mean the capacity to live independently without anyone else's help in making one's way through life. Children have yet to have that capacity. The elderly, when they're in their old age, now have to rely on others. They're not totally independent as they once were. And those in between think that they're independent. In other words, the knowledge, as Walter Brueggemann puts it, that Adam and Eve are tempted with in this passage, the serpent is trying to lure them towards, is autonomous freedom. Autonomous freedom. So it's not knowledge per se. God has given us our brains. He wants us to use them. He's given us a moral compass in our consciousnesses. Uh, God isn't against us having knowledge. But what he is against is us having the kind of autonomy 
or independence that comes from usurping God's authority and defining for ourselves what is good and what is true. Do you see that? Now, it's obvious, if you're still not tracking with me here, you can't quite see it. It's obvious when you compare God's original command in Genesis chapter 2 to what happens next in the language that Eve uses. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 9, it says that God made all kinds of trees grow out of the ground, trees that were pleasing to the eye and good for food. God made it all. Now, listen to the language in Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 to 5, when Eve looks at the one tree that God says is not good. Verse six, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. Who's saying that the fruit is good? Eve. Eve is saying that the fruit is good. And the use of the word good here is everything we need to know about one of the core aspects of sin that we see in this passage. The usurping of God's authority to decide for ourselves what is good and true. And not just defining for ourselves what's good, but also justifying it. Eve justifies eating from the tree. She believes there's something good in it. For her. She believes there's wisdom to be gained. So she justifies it with her language. So let's hit pause here for a second. I'm going to take a drink of water. I'll let you guys dwell on that. So it all started with the serpent's lies, which coiled around Adam and Eve until they bought into it and then claimed autonomy from God. And these are the same lies that the serpent uses today. First, that boundaries and limits, especially those set by God, are threats to our freedom. You could also say to our happiness. Number two, that we, as human beings, know best collectively and individually. And third, that what feels good and right is good and right. God's own people, because we can look at this and we kind of go, oh, I can totally see that in society. I can totally see that in the world. God's own people aren't immune to these lies. In Judges, God condemns his own people with his charge that everyone at that time did what was right in their own eyes. That was his charge against them. So even though culture changes and generations go by, these lies remain the same. They're the same strategy that the serpent uses over and over to feed our desire to live apart from God, to justify sin, and to sow even more chaos into the world, into God's ordered world. That kind of chaos 
is also referred to as lawlessness throughout Scripture. And it's mentioned in other parts of Scripture. In 2 Thessalonians uh, chapter 2, verses 6 to 8, it says that despite human beings bringing chaos into the world by believing the serpent's lies, that the chaos, the lawlessness that comes from human beings having control <laughs> is being held back by God himself. And he's holding it back until the day of Christ's coming. Now, the hardest part about all of this, which explains why we fall into the lies time and time again, and all of us, I want to make that clear, even me, have bought into some of these lies. The hardest part about it is that sin seems right. It can be justified. <laughs> like Adam and Eve justify their disobedience, we can come up with good-sounding reasons to do what we think is best or what serves us, or serves our desires, or keeps us in power. <laughs> on the macro level, on the large scale, this is how society has justified and still justifies evil. Things like abortion, things like residential schools, slavery, racism, sexism. You can go to the vices, like greed, the list goes on. On a personal level, Genesis chapter 3 prompts us to ask the question, what am I chasing after? What have I justified that is not good and right as defined by God? Whose voice am I letting define what's good and what's true for me? Who am I letting define reality? Is it God? Is it me? Is it someone else? If God's the source of life and truth and beauty and wholeness, shalom, then it's no wonder that when Adam and Eve claim autonomy, there's a total breakdown of shalom a breakdown of humanity's physical, psychological, social, and spiritual well-being. And even though I'm not going to read it, we see this happen in the remainder of the next few verses. In the shame that comes over Adam and Eve. In their immediate distrust that they have towards one another, covering up with temporary clothes. And they're hiding from God, having lost their innocence and afraid to come clean about what they have just done. We feel it, even more so when we recognize our sin. When we realize that the root of all the wrongness in the world aren't systems, or powerful tyrants, or governments, but each one of us. Each one of us. Like I said, Genesis chapter 3 is not the text to preach on if you want everyone to leave here happy. <laughs> like, woohoo! <laughs> it's heavy. It's heavy. However, up until this point, I've been highlighting where humans, where you and me, have gone astray, which explains a lot of the brokenness we see in the world. And although that's an important part of the text, and it's the focus of most commentaries and sermons that you'll hear. 
putting the focus on Adam and Eve like I have done so far and on their sin is not the whole story. It's not. Up to this point, we've been talking about original sin. But what if I told you that this text wasn't meant to be all about sin, but was actually about God's grace? What if I told you that Genesis 3 is really about a good God who remains good even in the worst chapter of human history or the human story? One of the few commentators who really emphasizes this, you can go back in history and you can read uh, older early church theologians who also talk about this, but in modern commentaries, uh, Daryl Johnson in his book, The Story of All Stories, he's the only one that I've found that really draws this out, really draws this out. In it, he points out a few things in the text that I'm going to borrow to, but then I'm also going to add some uh, that I've read from elsewhere. Uh, I'll say this has completely changed the way that I have read Genesis chapter 3 up to this point. And it has good news. It reveals the good news that is written all over this chapter, if you have eyes to see. First, God's prohibition. The very part of the command that the serpent used to get Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness in the first place, that prohibition is actually evidence of God's goodness. See, before the serpent, before Adam and Eve rebel, there's shalom, there's wholeness, meaning that God has provided everything humanity could ever need and everything that they do need to be fully human and fully alive. He's provided it all, everything. And God knew that the natural consequence of eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or claiming that autonomy for ourselves was death. Physical death, yes, 100%, as we'll see, but also spiritual death, the breakdown of shalom. So God's prohibition was not given to ruin Adam and Eve's lives, but to actually prevent them from ruining themselves. And it's the same thing today. God's wisdom is not meant to ruin our lives, but to prevent us from ruining our own lives and the lives of others. A parent who says, never says no is a bad parent. And God is a heavenly father who says no for our own good. He is a good father. Second, the very fact that Adam and Eve are faced with a choice reveals God's respect for us. See, throughout scripture, God's judgment often comes in the form of letting his creatures experience the consequences of their choices to reap what they sow. And that's because God has made us as rational and free beings with a freedom to make moral choices, to make choices on our own. We aren't pre-programmed robots. <laughs> And this is a good thing because as much as it means that there's potential there to choose the wrong thing, it's also necessary for there to be any potential to experience a relationship with God or with other people or to be capable of love. 
Now, this has all sorts of applications here in Genesis chapter 3, but also in conversations about God's wrath and even all the way to our conversations about heaven and hell. A God who forces his love, and we see this in Genesis 3, a God who would force his love would be a tyrant, like a king forcing his subjects to worship him. And a God who doesn't force his love on us is a good God, is a good God. It's also worth noting that in this, giving us the freedom to choose, that God takes a risk by placing creatures in his perfect garden with the ability to choose, knowing that they could make a muck of it all. And that's because God is a good God. He is a good God. Third, God has put evil on a leash. In the last chunk of the chapter, when God reads out the natural consequences of Adam and Eve's disobedience, the curses of sin, even then, in the place least expected, when God's laying out, here's what's going to happen because you claimed autonomy from me, God still remains good. We'll jump first to the curse that God places on humanity, specifically verse 19, where God says to Adam, by the sweat of your brow, you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. God's talking about death in this. How could it be possible that physical death, (laughs) the death that we mourn when we lose loved ones or fear for ourselves, that that could be evidence of a good God? It's because it means, death means that God won't allow evil to become an eternal reality in his creation. It means that no matter how far or how far humanity strays from God, how much they deviate and perpetuate injustices of all kinds corporately or sow chaos into the world individually, it will only ever get so far. In other words, God has numbered evil's days through numbering our days. We also see God holding evil back in the curse that God puts on the serpent. In verses 14 to 15, God says to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly and you will eat dust all the days of your life. If you look throughout scripture, that's a symbolic language that's used for utter humiliation. And then verse 15, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, and he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So first, in that passage, there's a sense that there will be ongoing tension between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Obviously, it's not a literal battle between snakes and humans, although I make for a great sci-fi flick. <laughs> um, it's not a literal battle uh, between snakes and humans. There's more going on. The idea here is that there's tension between those who follow in deceit and follow the path of the serpent, seizing authority from God, defining life on their own terms, sowing chaos into God's ordered world, and those who resist the serpent and live according to God's truth. That there's going to be tension in all the days that remain between those two camps, those two seeds. And in the end, this is the cool thing about Hebrew, uh, the word for seed can be collective, so talking about generations and, and human beings, and it can also refer to an individual. And 
It's cool in the end here, we see it refer to an individual, that there will be an individual who comes, who will resolve the tension and defeat the serpent and erase his lies once and for all, but not before this savior, this individual is wounded in some way. And we know, or I hope we know, (laughs) that that person is Jesus Christ who died at the hands of sinful humanity, who justified killing Jesus, only to be raised to new life, sharing his victory over the evil one and sharing his victory with those who call him Savior. A good God who remains good even in the worst chapter of the human story. Genesis chapter 3 is really ugly that chapter. It is. I wish we could skip it, or at least stop the Bible at Genesis 2. But Daryl Johnson, he summarizes the whole of what went wrong in chapter 3 this way. I think he does a brilliant job, so I want to quote it. Adam and Eve discovered that they were not to God, and that instead of becoming more like God, they had actually become less human, less like the humans that God made them to be. God didn't want to see the breakdown of shalom in our lives. Yet even after the rebellion, their absolute offense against God, who created them and was so good to them from the get-go, God remains good, even here. Here's probably the greatest demonstration of God's goodness in this text. Right after Adam and Eve put on the makeshift clothes to cover up their shame and jump into the bush to avoid God who's walking in the garden, verses 8 to 13 says this. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man. Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who? Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, well, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, so I ate it. (laughs) Great excuse. (laughs) And then verse 13, then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? What is it that you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and so I ate. We could go into their excuses here and their preoccupation with the word I that shows up in their defenses. <laughs> uh, one theologian calls it the incurvature of the soul, the preoccupation with the self uh, that we see in Adam and Eve here. But I don't want to pay attention to that. I want to pay attention to God's words here. Even in their departure from God, God pursues Adam and Eve. He knows what they did. He's God. He knows where they are. He's pursuing them. He's searching them out. He asks questions, not because he wants to learn something new. He already knows the answers. And he's not trying to damn them or fill them with more shame than they already feel. But he invites them to confess and repent. He enters into their struggle, their disobedience, and he seeks them and seeks a way for them to get out, a way back, a restoration for their sake. Let it be said that God did not have to do this. He had every right to kick them out 
but more than that, to erase everything and to start again. Yet God is good, even here, even in Adam and Eve's worst moment. And that's where I want to land us this morning. We're going to be taking communion in a moment here. And this, too, this table is an invitation from God to confess. To confess, but then also to celebrate that God hasn't given up on us. That he is a good God who remains good and seeks us in our worst moments. And that he's done something definitive to restore us to himself through Jesus Christ. So the very last thing that I want to point out in verse 21 before we take communion, or before Scott comes up and explains what we're going to do. In verse 21 it says, The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, clothing has a very meaningful symbolism in the Bible. It often represents the the covering of shame or guilt. And that's what God is doing here. He covers their shame. He takes on their shame on himself through a sacrifice. Where'd those garments come from? He had to sacrifice and then provide clothing for them. And this is also what Christ does for us. Not only did he take on our sin on the cross, but he also takes on our shame when we come to him in repentance. He clothes us, not just with clothes, but his very own righteousness. And then he leads us into new life with God, back to shalom. So my invitation to us as we approach the table this morning is to reflect on the same questions that God asked Adam and Eve. Where, who, and what? Where are you at? Are you or parts of you hiding from God? Are you fully in? Are you fully out? Are you somewhere in between? Who have you been listening to? Have you been listening to your own heart? Other people who claim to know the truth? Voices on TikTok or Instagram? And then lastly, what? What have you been doing? How have you been living? Is there a choice or a habit or a pattern of thinking that you need to confess to Jesus? In Genesis chapter 3, as well as throughout the course of our lives, and even in this moment, there has and always will be only one command from our good God. All other commands in Scripture are a variation of the first command God ever gave. And that is, let me be God. You be human. Let me be the creator. You be the creature. And live in intimate dependence on me. Amen.